We had the privilege of having the Reverend Mark Kuyper preach for us as many times as we can get them before we won't be able to get them very much anymore when they go to morning worship. And so Mark and his wife Tammy are here today, and Mark is going to preach for us out of Ephesians chapter 1. Mark and Tammy come from St. Louis, Missouri, where Mark was the pastor of Kirk of the Hills Presbyterian Church before he took the call to Grove to plant three rivers. So as Tess comes and reads God's word for us, then Mark will come and bring the gospel to us. Thanks, brother, for being here. Mm. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, he, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Today's sermon, in a sentence, God saves sinners for his own glory. God saves sinners for his own glory. That also is how I summarize Reformed theology. If you're new to it and you wonder, what is this new thing that's called Reformed theology that some of these folks have been uh, touting? What is it? Well, first of all, it's nothing new. It's the gospel. And it really is that simple. God saves sinners for his own glory. And it's absolutely the best news I could give you. It's wonderful news. It's life-changing, life-giving, affirming news. God saves sinners for his own glory. I was pastor at Kirk of the Hills for six years. For five of those years, on the third row, on what I used to call the piano side, Jack and Joanne Reed sat together. Now, Jack is one of those elderly people. You've probably met them. It seems to me that you can grow old in a church one of two ways. If your church, and I believe this wholeheartedly, preaches grace, not just as salvation but grace for sanctification, grace that takes us to glorification, grace that we live in. In fact, grace that changes everything. It's really funny. The last two weeks, two of my kids have visited us, and they've, uh, they've met folks in Grove that were part of this church, and they've shown up with their Grace Changes Everything t-shirts. And both of my kids have said, Dad, that's really awesome that they've already got t-shirts made for what you always say. <laughs> and I'm like, no... Actually, son, it's not just me. And um, it, it, it was just wonderful. It's heartwarming, actually, uh, to meet a group of people that have been a part of a church that preaches grace changes everything because it's, it's actually what in the six years at Kirk of the Hills, we changed our vision and our signs and everything. And that's exactly what it said. Grace changes everything. But as people age in a church... They age one of two ways, and you've probably seen it. You've probably seen an elderly person that sits in worship with their arms crossed and a scowl, and they are certain that anything new is going to be wrong. 
And they're frustrated with the way the pastor dresses, what he says, if he frequently uh, uses an illustration from a movie, if someone leading worship might have an earring or, uh, or a hole in their jeans. Um, and, and, and those folks are afraid that Christianity is losing. And they're frustrated with the way of our country. And I've had a lot of them in my churches. And I have felt their pain and their tension as they've seen grandchildren leave the church. Their own children come back from college and leave the church. And they are desperately trying to hold on to a, a, a sacred time when things were right and good, and, and, and maybe it was how they grew up, and it was what the Lord used in their uh, particular church as they grew up that, that held them close to the Lord. But then there are people like Jack and Joanne, who are also very set in their ways, who I get notes from Jack saying, I, I, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like your, your use of this, I, why are you not wearing a robe? I, I get those notes from Jack, but it's different because when I would look at Jack's face, there was this beaming love of Christ and his gospel that just oozed out of him. And I don't know if Blake has this, but, but Jack was the face I looked at when the sermon wasn't going well. When the one guy that was over here used to fall asleep, sometimes even before I preached, I would look at Jack, and I would see in him this love and acceptance of me just, just as a person, but this amazing heart full of grace. Jack had a stroke a little over a year ago and, uh, and, and ended up in uh, in. in in a, a short-term nursing facility, and then long-term care. Um, he was diabetic. His wife, Joanne, uh, took care of him and made sure that his food was right. Um, and, and I would go visit Jack. And, and he would grab my hand, and he would pray, and, and his sentences didn't make sense. Sometimes after a stroke, you know, it, it just didn't make sense. But, but it would be these phrases of, Jesus and your, and your love and your grace, and oh, thank you, thank you thank you, and oh, I love you. And whoever I brought with me, they would leave that place saying, what, what an amazing, what an amazing man. Then Joanne had a stroke. Jack was on one side of the hall. Joanne was on the other side of the hall. And Jack would get in his chair, and they, he would wheel over to Joanne, and she was in miserable shape, couldn't eat, and, and, and just, just uh, wasting away. And then we lost Joanne. It was a surprise to us. We thought she would long outlive Jack. We lost Joanne. And uh, I came to visit Jack in his room uh, the morning after Joanne died that night. And um, on Jack's wall was all the art that had been in Joanne's room. And one particular picture on the wall had come from little Ella. Ella uh, was about eight, but she was going on about 28. Uh, but Ella had colored a picture for Joanne, and this picture was, I mean, it was Cinderella in a carriage going up to a castle. Cinderella in a carriage being drawn by the four horsemen up to a castle. And it sat in Jack's room, and we looked at that, and the pastor that was with me, we looked at that, and as we walked in, Jack had this huge smile, and he says to me, Jesus has done it. He saved my Joe, she's with him now.
was just beaming this delightful face. I, I, I'll get to see her, but, but she's with him now. And I looked at that picture and I said, it's like that picture, isn't it? It's the dream of maybe every little girl to be a princess in a cart taken to a castle. And Jack says, Jesus has done it. That's really what our text says this morning. Uh, we can dive into it. There's quite a bit. We'll probably spend about four weeks on this in Grove. But this morning, I, I want to just talk briefly about the how and the why of salvation. And, and we can do that by looking at what, what Jesus has done, what God has done in the past, and what he's doing in the present. If we have time, we might talk a little bit about the future. This text uh, really follows the, this brief introduction that the apostle gives, but I, I need to make sure you understand it. It's verse 3, so there's a context before it. Uh, the first two verses, it's Paul expressing who he is. He is one called of Christ as an apostle. That's who I am. Uh, not Paul, the one that studied here and did all of this and has experienced all of this and has done miracles, but Paul called as an apostle. And then to the saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus and to the saints who are in Christ. And then he says, grace and peace to you. And so what flows from this verse 3 to really all about 14 seems to me to be this uh, abundant joy that he feels when he thinks about those people. When I think about the saints who are in Ephesus and who are in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is. There are people who are in a city they're placed in a city. They have a geographical location. They're in Owasso, and yet they're in Christ. And then all of this flows out. Uh, we, we call my oldest son sometimes happy bumbling brother. And uh, if you ever get to meet Jordan, he's about an inch taller than me, uh, blonde, curly hair. He is extremely loud. In his senior yearbook, both he and my other son, DeAndre, they appear in the yearbook when they have all the senior superlatives, most likely to do this, most likely to do that. We open the page, and there is Jordan, and there is DeAndre, and it says, most likely to be heard in a room full of people. And I said, and they both live in my house. No wonder it's so noisy in my place. But Jordan, happy bumbling brother. We call it happy bumbling brother because he gets filled with love for his siblings. And he gets loud, and usually it's followed by a scream from my daughter as he chases her down and starts tickling her. In fact, it happens so often that if you do anything to my daughter, she will respond by saying, stop it, Jordan, even if Jordan is in another state. It's just hardwired that if someone's tickling her, if someone's scaring her, if someone's chasing her, it's got to be Jordan. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is over. Joyed. He has a special relationship with his church in Ephesus. It's a beautiful, loving relationship. When he leaves them, you read in Acts that they are weeping. And yet he knows that he is driven on by the gospel, by the Spirit of Jesus, to go to different places and administer the gospel to different places. And yet there is this love, and it pours out from him. And that's what it is. What does grace to you and peace mean to the believer? The other thing I want to point out as we look at this is he talks about the blessings, but they're all associated with us being in Christ. And, and, and so as we take communion this morning, 
you think there is probably no better way that God the Father could remind his people weekly that you rest in your relationship with my son. There's no way I think that he could even figure out how to get it into our heads and saying, eat this because it reminds you that his body takes your place. Drink this, it reminds you that his blood was shed for your sins. Eat this and because you are in him, you're gonna be treated as I would treat my beloved son. And so all that flows out of this is Paul saying, this is all that you have in Christ. But he also puts in the heavenly places. And it's absolutely essential that we get that little phrase as we think about this because we are so set on thinking that God's blessing to me is in the physical places. What I have, who loves me, who I love, how I feel. Uh, and and our, our focus of our prayers so often are in these physical places. And yet in this text, if we had time, we would see that he is also pointing to a future where he says, no, God has, has chosen you and he is working in you, but it is part of his plan to unite all things, heaven and earth, all things, physical, spiritual, all things under the head of Christ. But here he is saying, first and foremost, you saints in Ephesus, you have to get what God has done for you. And so, as I start this letter, I want you to understand how you became his and why you became his. So, let's look at this text. First, the, the how. How did they become his? Well, verses 4 to 6 take it very simply. They say, he chose us. He chose us. How did they become his? Because God chose you. Now, in, in our world, we, we think of people being better than us. But I think sometimes for Christians, it, it's, it's much better for us to think of being better off. There's a difference. A, a, a better person is someone who exceeds you in whatever particular thing you find important, whether it's in sales or marketing or music or sex appeal or wisdom or fantasy football. They're better than you in this. Christians often come across in a society acting as if we are better than all the other folks. And if we're not careful, and if we don't continue to drive this grace of the gospel in all of our conversation and our living, we give that message to a world that says, if you're better, like me, then God will have you to be his own. And that's not at all what it says here. It says at the start, oh, saints in Ephesus, the absolute reason that you are in Christ is because God in his Love, wisdom, and will chose you. When did this happen? The text says that it happened before the world began. Before the world was founded. Before you did anything good and bad, God in his wisdom and steadfast love said, I want you to be mine. Now, we have lots of problems with this. We have lots of problems. A, a lot of the problems that we have are, deal with us being in an American culture, in a fairness culture, 
And I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, whenever you hear the word fairness, to just do a little mental check and say, are we talking about fairness or are we talking about envy? Because in our culture, those two things just seem to cloud over each other. And, and here's an easy test. Right? If, if, if you're teaching sixth graders or fifth graders and you have six in your class, bring three candy bars. Just do it one week. Just bring three candy bars and just give three candy bars out. Don't, don't have them compete. Don't have them answer questions for it. Don't give it to the ones that get there first. Matter, matter of fact, maybe even give it to the one that gets there the last. Give three candy bars and see how the other three react. Now, they're probably good kids here. They're probably, those other three will probably be really grateful that these three received candy bars. They'll probably praise God for it and say, it's really wonderful. I'm really, really happy for you. Maybe. But probably at least one would say, that's not fair. That's not fair. And it is often our response to this doctrine that's not the church's doctrine, it's not Presbyterian doctrine, it is God saying, I am going to reveal to you, and the text says it, the mystery, the mystery of his will. God in his divine goodness and steadfast love called people who were dead to be his. He did this before the world started. And in the past, he, he even says that when he did this in verse 4, that, that there was a reason for it. He did this to make us holy and blameless. The how of salvation, God calls the people to be his. The why of salvation, to make us holy and blameless in his sight. Now, I haven't moved into my office yet, but I have a picture that's going in there. I've got several pictures. I've got one uh, that's just a bunch of empty pews. And I put it on my wall, and it reminds me to pray for the empty seats. To pray that those seats get filled. To pray towards the filling of that, that it isn't in any way for me trying to somehow internally think I've done something worthwhile. It is all for the glory of God. There's another picture. And Tammy got it for me this Christmas. And as I opened it, I knew exactly what it meant and where it was going. It's a picture of an old pickup truck. And um, it's just actually the windshield of the old pickup truck, and the windshield is broken. The pickup truck's all raggedy, but you look through that windshield, and, and there is a beautiful sky with clouds in it. And I know what it's for. You see, when I see an old pickup truck, I, I think about the old pickup truck I had in Tupelo, Mississippi. It was a 1974 Chevy. Uh, I had seen it for about a year in this farmer's field in a place that I'd go fish, would drive past this old Chevy, four-by-four pickup truck, uh, short wheelbase, step side, awesome-looking truck. Uh, my son Jordan had his senior year project. They, they do something like an Eagle Scout project. Uh, he said, hey, Dad, I was thinking it'd be really fun if you and I got an old car and we restored it. 
And that's his way of saying, Dad, it'd be really cool if you got an old car and you paid for all the parts and I could drive it. But he had me. I mean, he had me. I'm like, yes, that, it's for school. Mom will not say anything against that. I mean, we've got to do this. But as soon as he said it, in my mind, I said, I know the truck. And I went to the farmer and I said, how much do you want for that truck? He goes, that, that old thing? He goes, I'd be just glad if you took it. And so we, we took this old Chevy and there was just such rejoicing. We put it in our garage in Tupelo, Mississippi. And we worked so hard on it. In fact, one day, uh, Jimmy had to come over. Jimmy was one of those jackleg shade tree mechanics in Mississippi that could fix anything. And I loved it. He was about this tall. And you see his feet just sticking out the back of the engine as we were working on it. And he said, I give her a crank. And so we cranked it up. It started mud dauber nests and dirt. Everything came out. A tailpipe all over the garage. It was smoke filled. Then it caught fire. But we roared and cheered. And the reason I'm telling you that is because for me, that's a picture of God's election. It really is. There in the field was an old truck. It, it's not what it used to be. It couldn't function how it was originally intended to function. In fact, the only thing it could do was continue to rust and gather rats and decay. And because of someone beyond itself decided, I have a plan for you, I went and got it. And I like to think of that when the engine started as that first breath of life from the Holy Spirit into a person. That over time dries out everything that is wrong and dirty and dying and in, in, inside and it, it drives it out. And the rejoicing that went on. But the months after that, I kept getting all of these catalogs and they had pictures of the Chevy that we had with a new paint job, with a hardwood bed, with a new instrument cluster. They actually were better than the original. And I thought, that's the plan that my father has for me. That's the plan he has for me. If you're in Christ, I know this is just a small picture of it, but if you're in Christ, that's absolutely what God intends for you. It started in the past, before you were even you. And it is God is saying, I'm not just the excellent mechanic or the architect or the painter or the creator of all the things that are beautiful that cultures worship. No, I'm your creator, and I intend to not just save you from my wrath, although that would be wonderful, but to make you holy and blameless in my sight. Now, this is life-changing. Let me tell you how it helps you as a believer. Right now, the things that you struggle with, for you to, to, to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that since God has called me to be his, since his spirit breathed into me this new life, what I'm facing right now has to somehow fit in the will of God for my holiness. And though I may not be able to understand it, I may not, it may not make any sense to me, and I may cry out to the Lord, please take this away. There is a reason. There is a reason. And his purposes will be met in me. 
So the apostle says, in the past, these are the things that God did. It was to make us holy and blameless. And then in verse 6, it was also that God would be praised for his glorious grace. When you see a restored vehicle, you wonder who did it, don't you? Because you know, okay, if it's 40, 50 years old, it's either been locked away in a garage or someone has placed effort, time, and money into it. God is saying that his people on planet Earth are to be that. We are to be, as it says, to be, that we might be for the praise of his glory. And it's vitally important that we understand that because the world will look at us and they will say, you're better. You're just better than me. I, I would have never thought about responding this way. I would have never thought about giving this up to help another person. I would have never thought about giving away a fortune or money to people that don't even like us. I would never have thought about it. You're such a better person, and you will hear that. And your response is to be, no, I'm just better off. I have received from God, the Father Almighty, His Spirit of no good of my own, but of his glorious grace, he called me to be his. And when he called me to be his, I repented of all the sins that I knew about, but I knew that, that it was just going to be this process of repentance, confession, and assurance, of receiving the gospel new and fresh every day, of having a meal once a week with the brothers to remind me that that would have this effect of changing who I actually am. That's in the past. But he says now in the present, verses 5 to 8, that, that he saved us to be adopted. I, I love that phrase, to be adopted, because what the apostle is saying to the church in Ephesus, none of you are here by any natural means. None of you are his because your parents were so good and God has grandkids and great-grandkids. No, everyone in his kingdom is there because they are adopted. My son Luke and I, we absolutely love to fish. If there's someone who loves to fish more than me in this world, it probably is Luke. In fact, the other day someone asked me, what do you think Luke's doing? I said, right now, it's about four in the afternoon. I think he's fishing. And I sent him a text and said, Luke, send me a picture of yourself right now. And he sent me a picture, and it's just great. He, he's holding the, you know, the pool cord on an outboard. He's holding a broken one. <laughs> and he, he just sends me a selfie, holding this broken string off of, I said, yeah, there he is. He's fishing. On one such fishing trip with Luke, we were uh, fishing at a friend's place, beautiful, uh, beautiful piece of property private property with a lake and a, and a boat launch, and we were catching big bass and enjoying it. And Luke sits back and he says, hey, Dad, the guy who owns this, his name is Chip. He said, now, Chip, is his only son Rusty? I said, yeah, Chip's only son is Rusty. He goes, now, and Rusty, his only kids are Mont and Knox, right? I said, yeah, little Mont and Knox. He's like, they're going to get this, aren't they? I'm like, yeah. In fact, son, it, it's already theirs. They can do whatever they want here. It's, 
It's theirs. He says, they have no idea, Dad. He was kind of angry about it. They, they have no idea what is theirs just because they were born into this family. And I solemnly believe that the apostle in this next group of verses is just saying that same thing. Because God in Christ called you to be his, because his spirit worked in you salvation, you now receive, and he lists these things, you receive redemption through his blood. You receive forgiveness of your trespasses. You receive the riches of his grace in verse 7. And you receive the knowledge of God's will. Verses 8 and 9. He doesn't spoil us. He gives us what we absolutely can't get on our own. He gives it to us for His glory and for the good of this world. Now, uh, the passage goes on and talks about the future, bringing all these things together, and I don't have time to, to go into that with you this morning. But I want you to think about that as you move towards communion, that, that what this does is free the church to be what the world really wants, a place that the broken down pickup truck can be towed into with, with all of its stench and brokenness and inability to fix itself. It will come into contact with those who by faith have received the wonderful saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God saves sinners for his own glory. Now, this doctrine is never, ever given in Scripture as an excuse for someone rebelling against God. It is never, ever given. In fact, uh, God's people at times argue about his judgment upon the world. They do it in Ezekiel. They do it in, in Romans. talks about why then would he condemn us? Um, it's never used for that reason, and here's why. Because the gospel tells us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And, and, I, and I, that's why I choose the picture of the old truck. On its own, it will do nothing. It just absolutely can't. But God being rich in mercy. It's also never used in Scripture uh, in, in reference to a person that is seeking the Lord. It's, it's never used as a person who says, I, I, I want to repent of my sins. Oh no, I haven't been chosen by him. It just doesn't exist. It does not happen in the scriptures. And I love the way that John Stott explains it. He says it this way. He says, now everybody finds the doctrine of election difficult. Didn't I choose God, someone asks indignantly, to which we must answer, yes, indeed you did, and freely. But only because in eternity past, God had first chosen you. Didn't I decide for Christ, asks someone else, to which we must reply, yes, indeed you did, and freely. But only because in eternity past, God had first decided for you. In your study of Christian doctrine, it should work out in this order. Doctrine, 
leads to doxology. It's absolutely what happens here. Uh, a, a praising, using your words to praise God. And then it leads to duty. Think about what this means for you if you're a Christian. This means in that same manner that God chose you, you are free to choose another person. Have you ever thought about that? That, that the, the Christian then being Christ-like then is called into a world where they say, I want to find the most unlovable person in my office. They're probably hurting. I, I wanna, I'm going to love them. That's what I'm going to do this year. I'm going to love that person who is unlovely. And every time they hurt me, I'm going to go back to Jesus. I'm going to say, how have I hurt you in that same way that I've just been hurt? And in so doing, I'm actually going to grow in the way that I understand the grace of God has towards me. And who knows? God may be glorified in calling that person to be his. I might get to watch all of this. But even if that doesn't happen, I can express the love that Christ has for me to another. The other way that you're freed up to do that is most of our friendships among human beings are friendships that we use to receive something. Either, uh, and, and I'm just starting out in Grove, and I'm like, who's going to be my best friend? Well, that guy's got a really nice boat. That guy has a great... <laughs> so then I find myself saying, I better not like that person because he thinks I'm going to like that person because he's got a great boat. But isn't that how our friendships work? We, we kind of move into it saying, is this going to be mutually beneficial? Am I going to have a lot of fun with this person? Do I have a lot of things in common? And, and that's absolutely fine. But once Jesus fills that believer, we don't, in a sense, have to go and make friends to feed our souls anymore. We don't have to go make friends that are going to tell us we're awesome, we're wonderful. We don't have to do that. We receive what Christ has won before the Father. We receive this judgment. You're mine. In you, I'm well pleased. We receive that from him. So we don't have to receive it from other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the sacrament that we're about to take. What a wonderful thing that you have done. And, and you've told us, celebrate your son's death. Celebrate it until he comes again. Be reminded, Father, until he comes again that Christ is sufficient. That Christ has won it. He's done it for us. Father, I pray that you fill us with that sacrament. You fill us with your grace. Lord, I pray for Trinity Owasso that, that you release these folks to go and love the unlovely because that's what their doctrine has taught them that Jesus does. And to be glorified, Father, in that process. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.